You are listening to After Sunday, a Vintage Church NOLA podcast hosted by lead pastor Dustin Turner. After Sunday is focused on helping you live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church Monday through Saturday. Here is this week's episode. Welcome to After Sunday. My name is Dustin Turner, and I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. In the life of the church, Sundays are important, but not everything happens on Sunday. Life happens Monday through Saturday. So my hope is that this podcast inspires you and equips you to live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church after Sunday. On this week's episode, I'm excited to talk with my friend, who's also one of our vintage partners, Josh Hagens. Josh serves on our equipping team, helping us write uh, our V-group studies, as well as other resources. He's also a PhD student at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in theology. If you've been with us during this Advent season, you've probably noticed that we've been doing something a little bit different. Before each sermon, we have been reciting together the Nicene Creed. It's a creative way for us uh, to not only confess, but also respond to the Lord. And while Christians all over the world for centuries have recited the Nicene Creed weekly, this is new for Vintage Church. This is something that we haven't done a lot of. So I thought it would be helpful uh, to spend some time discussing the Nicene Creed, what it is, its history, what it confesses, especially as we approach the Christmas Day and as we're in this Advent season, because a huge part of the Nicene Creed is what we confess about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the person that we are worshiping in this season. So because Josh is a PhD student and because some of his main focuses in his studies are on both the Trinity, that is the study of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Christology, that is the study of Jesus, I thought it would be helpful to have Josh on the podcast for him to uh, discuss some of the ins and outs of the Nicene Creed. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So, let's start just by giving some history. What is the history of the Nicene Creed? Yeah, so the Nicene Creed was originally written at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was written in response to a heresy called Arianism, uh, which the the one who believed in Arianism, or the one who promoted this idea, his name was Arius, where we get the, the name from uh, the, for the heresy. Um, in contrast to the teaching that Jesus had always existed uh, as God before he became man, Arius taught that there was a time when the Son did not exist, and he was the first created being, um, and he's the agent of God's creation. So in response to this, pastors from around the Christian empire they gathered for an ecumenical council, which is a gathering of pastors from both the eastern and western sides of the empire to draft a creed, uh, which was a statement of faith and what they believed about Jesus in response to this uh, Arian uh, heresy. And so um, they, at the council, they drafted this creed. They confessed the Son was of the same essence as the Father. Uh, this, uh, there's the, the Greek word for this is homoousios, as the same essence as the Father. So that meant that the Son was equal in divinity with the Father, and therefore he existed eternally with the Father before he became a man. Now, the council didn't settle everything. 
there's a lot of questions revolving around what it meant for the Son to be of the same essence as the Father. If the Son and the Father are of the same essence, and therefore both God, and there is only one God, then how do we avoid another heresy that says the Father and the Son are not distinct from one another? Mm. And so there's this um, importance that is attached to making sure that the Father and the Son are the same, but also they're not the same. So how, well, what does that actually mean? That sounds like a contradiction. Well, they're the same, but they're not the same. But they're not the same, yeah. right. So what, how, do you, how do you parse that out? And yeah. that was sort of the, the struggle. While the council condemned Arianism, a lot of debate happened in order to clarify how it was the Father and, share, father and Son shared the same essence. Um, there was also debate over whether the Holy Spirit was equally God with the Father and Son. So it wasn't until 381 that another council was called the Council of Constantinople. There, Christians clarified that the Father, Son, and Spirit were the same at the level of essence, but were distinct at the level of person. Mm. So that means what they are is the same, but who they are is distinct. Okay. Creed, read in church today, is an expanded version from that council in 381, which says more about the Holy Spirit than the earlier creed. Yeah. So the creed that we've been reciting at Vintage dates back to A.D. 381. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we're talking like 1,600 years Mm -hmm. plus. Correct. So I think that's important for us to recognize is that for for the church, Christians have been confessing these things about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. uh, for almost 1,700 years. Mm-hmm. And that's important, and that's significant. So piggybacking off of that, <clears throat> why should all Christians confess the Nicene Creed? Uh, the simple answer to that is it's biblical. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think Christians should be very concerned, though, to make sure that what they confess is biblical because the Bible Mm. is the standard for all Christian confessions. But this does beg the question, is the Nicene Creed biblical? Sure. There are some who who say it's not. Homoousios isn't in the Bible. Right. The the word homoousios, the Greek word, that's right. It uses some some of the terms and how they understood it weren't directly taken from the scriptures. And and in fact, that was a concern of even the bishops at the time in Nicaea, as they Mm. felt like the word homoousios, uh, of the same essence, uh, wasn't found. And so they wanted to stick to more scriptural language. And so... This question, however, um, alone, you know, is is the Nicene Creed biblical? Um, the question itself is tricky because what does it mean to call anything biblical? Hmm. And uh, so the answer to that is tricky because Arius thought he was being sure. Uh, uh, that he was being biblical. Um, right. Just as many heretical groups do today, they, they say that, well, we base it off the Bible. So what counts as biblical? So, for example, in Colossians 1.15, um, Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And when Arius read that, he said, see, Christ is the firstborn of creation. And when Arius, um, he said, therefore, that means that Christ is the first of all created creatures. So another famous passage is in Proverbs 8.22, where one translation has it, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work. And Arius thought this referred to Christ. These and many other passages Arius used to show that his view is biblical, and yet his view is still heretical. Why was it heretical, though? Well, in the years that followed the Council of Nicaea, Christians reflected long and hard on what it meant to say Jesus is Lord, which was always the confession of the church. 
In Philippians 2.11, Christ is called Lord, which is the name used of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh. That's right. That's right. So if Christ shares the same name as the one God of Israel, then he must be equal with God. If God is eternal and uncreated and Jesus is equal with God, then Jesus was therefore eternal and uncreated. Arius also forced Christians to read scripture very closely, going back to Colossians 1.15, when Christ is called the firstborn of creation. The context is clear that what it is referring to is the new creation because Christ is the firstborn of the dead. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That he's the first fruits. That's right. That's kind of what they're getting at. Correct. Okay. Correct. So he's the firstborn. That means he's the first to raise and glorified. So it is not that Christ is the first created being, but he's the first representative of glorified humanity in his incarnation. Hmm. So by reflecting on what it meant for Jesus to be God and by reading scripture closely, Christians summarize a succinct way of articulating what Christians believed and what the Bible taught so as to avoid heretical misunderstandings. So in a way, the Nicene Creed is a Cliff Notes version of the biblical storyline and of biblical teachings. This is why Christians can't confess the Nicene Creed, and they should do so for at least two reasons. One, because it guides them in how to read scripture and how to understand it properly. And two, it helps Christians to articulate what it is they believe about God. Hmm. Yeah, it really helps us think about even how we read scriptures and thinking about getting to like interpretation and hermeneutics that the biblical books aren't written to be textbooks. Mm -hmm. They're not written to be the creed, right? So you're reading all of these different genres, and of course all these different genres are going to say the same thing about God, but say it in different ways. Different ways, that's right. So I think part of what the creed is helping us do is like, put all of these sources together, all of these books of the Bible together, all of these different genres and say, when we look at all of these things together, Mm -hmm. this is what we see the scriptures teaching us about God, about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, etc. Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Absolutely. Yeah, um, a, a helpful way to think about it is that while we might use a word that's not biblical, you know, the, of the same essence, like homoousios. Yeah, trinity. The, right, trinity. While these aren't words, these aren't concepts found in the Bible, um, the judgment, what what the concept intends to, to declare um, is found yeah. in Scripture. And so there is a distinction between concepts and judgments. The concept is outside of the Bible, but it's meaning to... A, uh, it is a collection of a pattern of judgments found in Scripture. Something can still be biblical, even though it's not explicitly stated in, in the Bible. Bible. That's correct. And I think that's important for us to understand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've kind of teased this out a little bit already, but talk to us about how the Nicene Creed is organized. Okay. Yeah, the Nicene Creed, like I said, is kind of a Cliff Notes version of the Christian story. It covers the whole... Um, story of the gospel from creation, fall, and redemption, and it identifies the primary actor of the biblical plot, one God in three persons. God the Father created, God the Son saved creation, and God the Holy Spirit brings creation to its glorified end. The creed can be divided into four parts that begin with the Latin word credo, which means I believe, where we get that word. 
It begins with a short confession of one God, the Father, who created all things, and then a somewhat longer section about the Son, obviously, because that was the main center of the debate, is the Son's relation to yep. the Father. So there's a, a very uh, long section on that, and um, it's about what the Son did for us by suffering and uh, by dying. It is then followed up with a confession about the Holy Spirit and how he is worshipped along with the Father and the Son. Then the Creed closes with a statement about the universal church. Um, implicit in this creed is the confession that only God can create, save, and glorify. Hmm. That So it, it goes through all the, the things that God does through the history of salvation, but emphasizes that it, it is God yeah. all the way through. This means that the Son and Spirit cannot be less than fully divine. Only what is fully and equally uh, God can create, save, and glorify. Interesting. So the meta narrative of Scripture is kind of found throughout the creed, right, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And then the main character of that nar- narrative, God, mm-hmm. as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then are kind of the building blocks of the creed, of the way in which we understand and read the creed. Correct. And what we confess. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are the things, there's a lot, I mean, the creed is not exhaustive, right? But right. these are the, the bare bones, minimalistic things that we would say, we need to confess, we need to believe about God. Right, right. It's a collection of all the parts that are essential to the gospel. Um, if, if, mm. if Jesus is not God, the Christian confession from, from even before the creed that is found in, embedded in the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. Well, what does that mean? If Jesus is Lord um, and we're worshiping Jesus and he is not the Lord, we're, we're idolaters. And so the very logic of uh, the gospel falls apart because who saves us is God alone. If uh, we're saying Jesus saves us and he's not God, we're in trouble. So we've talked about this a little bit already, but let's let's look at each of these persons of the Trinity. What does the creed confess about the Father? What does the creed confess about the Son? What does the creed confess about the Holy Spirit? Okay. Um, the creed confesses that the Father is creator of all things, visible and invisible. It then makes a series of confessions about the Son's relation to the Father. The first is eternally begotten, which we'll return to in a moment. Um, it says eternally begotten, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is all. Uh, this all underscores the fact that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. Suppose I took a candle and lit another candle with it. The light shared between the two candles would be of the same essence. It's a light from light. Now that analogy breaks down at a point because here we have two things, but with God there's only one. But the idea is that what is sent from God is God and not something other than God. It's God from God, light from light. Yep. The creed also states that the Son was begotten, not made. Um, and uh, what this means real briefly is that begotten here means eternal sonship. The Son is related to the Father eternally as a Son. So um, a lot of this language is coming from Scripture. Um, the Son is called the only begotten yep. God. Um, and when the Arians read this, uh, when Arius and his followers read this, 
they thought, well, begotten means to, uh, to have a point in time where... Because on earth, when you're begotten, there was a moment you weren't and a moment you are. Correct, correct. And um, this didn't really fit for the descriptions of, of Jesus as divine in the New Testament. Yep. And so by collecting these patterns of judgments, they realized that this isn't, this isn't really what's going on here, that the Christians were really forced to reflect on what other scriptures say about God the Son. And they said that what this shows is that there is a relation of origin. There is a relation between the Father and the Son that's an eternal relation. Yep. So begottenness is not a, something that the Son began to exist, but he had always been a Son. He had always been uh, begotten from the Father. And the Father Father is not a name that we name him simply because you know, he creates it's that he's eternally constituted as father. Because, because he is an eternal son. He has a son. That's right. And so that's what this means. And so when the creed states that um, the son is begotten, not made, that is that the, the emphasis there is the, the not made. It stresses that he did not become a son, but had always been a son from eternity. Hmm. And so okay. while the son is begotten of the father... The Spirit is said to proceed from the Father. So you notice how these are the different ways. This is, uh, try not to use the theological jargon, but... Let's but, use it. Yeah, they, these are uh, the way that the Father, Son, and Spirit, the way they are the same is the same essence, right? They're the yep. same what. But how do we distinguish the persons? Well, what the early church did, and they did this rightly, they looked at Scripture and said, well, um, the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Son. Well, why is that? Well, Scripture says the Father sends the Son. The mm -hmm. Son doesn't send the Father. Um, and so this relation of, of, of being sent, of begottenness, and of course of the Holy Spirit, the way we distinguish Him is His unique manner of, of being sent. It's procession. Because the, the Bible talks about the Spirit proceeding. The Spirit proceeds Right. And of course, there's a whole lot of uh, debate that goes into this in the later centuries after mm -hmm. Nicaea. But, uh, but yes, that's how we distinguish them, is that they're the same God, but the way in which they, they have their sendedness is, is different. Mm -hmm. And so the Father, uh, the Father begets the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And um, there is an expanded section of the Creed uh, that, that is added um, the earlier 325 creed was a lot shorter, but there were uh, some debates that existed between 325 and 381 about whether or not the Holy Spirit was fully divine. And um, it, it's, it's not as prominent as the debate about the Son, but it is there. And so there was some additional elements that were added to the later creed to emphasize that the Spirit is equally divine just as the Father and the Son. Okay. So what does it also say, um, getting back to the Son, what are some of the elements of the gospel that the creed is intentional to mention? Yeah, yeah. He is, um, yeah, like we said, he's begotten from the Father, but that he became man. Uh, that's important. He mm -hmm. is truly man. Um, he is consubstantial with us. Um, which means which, what? Uh, of the same essence. That's okay. another. Uh, so just as much as he's of the same essence of the of the of God of the Father and of the right. Spirit, he is of the same essence of humans. Right. Correct. 
And that's how we get to the language of two natures, that the Son, uh, Jesus, is the fully begotten Son of God. Uh, he is divine. But as a man, he's also fully human. Yep. And, uh, and truly, truly so. Um, and so that's what it stresses is, is that he's, he's with us. He came down. Uh, he eternally existed, became one of us, and he suffered and he died. Yep. Um, that grounds in uh, a, a, a historic act. This isn't mythology. This isn't just There's, a story that we believe. People are named, right? right. Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's named. Uh, the creed says that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. So it mentions his mother. Right, right. Um, and, and this is all um, locating the son in time and space is mm. what this does. This is a real person. He really yep. became man, and he really suffered and died. And he didn't just suffer and die just because. You know, what's the point? point is he did it for us he did he was he did it in our place yep. and uh that's the significance that's attached to it and so the creed kind of goes over the elements of him being uh, uh him suffering of him dying and raising again on the third day because without the resurrection the it's crucifixion's nothing. meaningless right yeah what anything else about the holy spirit that you would add that it confesses proceeds mm -hmm. i think the creed says if i'm remembering correctly that he spoke through the prophets that's right. Um, so it really talks about inspiration of Scripture, that, that yes, men wrote it, but it's the Word is inspired by God. That is correct, yeah. Um, and that it's the same God who's been working all along, even in the prophets. Mm. It's that consubstantial, or our homoousios, that word to me, same essence, is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they've always been at work. They've mm. all, it's the same God who does all of these things. Yep. Um, and so the Holy Spirit is not just a new element on the scene at Pentecost. He's always been there. He spoke to That's, the prophets. Uh, just a side note, right? That would be like modalism. Right. Modalism. So another heresy that was in the early church that you're kind of hinting at. Yes. So what was modalism real quick? Yeah, modalism. So earlier we talked about how one of the challenges was to keep the Father, the Son, and the Spirit distinct, even though they're the same God. Well, modalism collapses those distinctions. The Father is the Son. The Son is the Father. The Holy Spirit is the, the Father and the Son. Yep. Um, and the Orthodox confession is, well, no, they're, they're distinct. The Father is not the Son because the Father, he sends the Son. Yep. The Son does not send the Father. And uh, modalism, uh, an example of modalism, and even our own thinking today, as we hear this a lot, that the, the Trinity is like me being a father, but I'm also a son, but I'm also a husband, um, but I'm the same person. The Trinity is like that. Well, no, that's that's actually There's three persons. Right, right. There, there are distinctions yep. in the Godhead. And that's what we want to avoid is we want to avoid um, modalism, uh, a yeah. collapsing. Of and the, even looking at the New Testament, I mean, I know the, the classic text is the baptism of Jesus. Yes. Like modalism can't exist because in the baptism of Jesus, the father is looking down on the son and saying, this is my uh, only begotten son who I'm well pleased. The son is being baptized and the spirit's descending on the son in the form of a dove. Yes. So if they're only really one, how are all three active in that one single moment? Yeah. 
So modalism doesn't even make sense. Right. Yeah, modalism tries to just simply say well, these are just appearances of the one yeah. God. It's, it's, which again, just appearances. Which again, I think, speaks to the significance of how uh, you can use language that's extra biblical mm-hmm. to speak on a biblical topic, a biblical idea. Mm-hmm. Because... Again, modalists, I think, would say, "Well, we're being, we're being biblical. We're we're showing, you know, the oneness of God, etc." And yes, they're using biblical language, but right. the idea that they're promoting isn't a biblical idea. Right. It can't capture the full biblical truth that's being portrayed yeah. at the baptism. Um, mm-hmm. So I know part of uh, the creed at the end with the Holy Spirit is it says. Um, that we believe we confess one holy Catholic and apostolic mm-hmm. church. And as a Protestant, uh-huh. uh, and I'm sure I've, you know, if I were to lift my head while we're reading and reciting the creed together on a Sunday, especially that first week, which I didn't, but I'm sure there are some people out in the uh, congregation that uh, appear confused yeah. because why would we confess? one holy Catholic and apostolic church when we're not Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, number one, what are we confessing there? Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And then should we actually confess that? Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember when, when uh, we read it the first Sunday, it, it, even I, you know, I know the background <laughs> to that creed, but like me, I'm like, oh, can we, can we say that? Your Protestant heart stopped. I, know, I was like, oh my gosh. And, and yeah, there's probably a lot of questions that people have about that, but it means that we're Catholic, we're not Roman Catholic. Mm, okay, so, so what's the difference? There's a difference here. So, so when um, w- the word Catholic is used, it simply means universal. Okay. Okay. Um, to confess that there is one Catholic Church is to simply confess that there is one Church, one Bride, one Body of Christ. Which I think every Christian would confess that. Right. Right. We don't have like second cousins or anything like that. Yeah. Like, there's only one. There is only one Church. That's when correct. it's all said and done. Right. Correct. And so while there might be distinctions among us between, um, you know. Uh, Catholics, there's there's a little more doctrinal differences between us mm-hmm. in matters that we think are essential to the gospel, like justification, how it is that we come to to uh, become justified by God. But uh, we wouldn't say that oh, you know no Catholic is not a Christian. You know they believe yeah. in Jesus, they believe in the Trinity. Um, just like we would say that you know just because you're a Baptist doesn't mean you're a Christian. You oh, know? careful now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean just just because you grew up in church that yeah. doesn't ma- mean you're saved. And so um, so yeah, the same thing applies for us as people who believe in Jesus, who truly trust in His atoning work, um, who've committed their lives to Him. That's what it means to trust Jesus, despite the fact that you might be of a different denomination or a different um, communion. uh, Which then means you are a part of the one church. church. That's right. That's right. And so Catholic just means universal. So that simply means there is one bride, uh, one church, one body of Christ. And it encompasses uh, every ethnicity. Um, It's not tied to a specific nation or a demographic. Uh, it's it's one church yeah. that encompasses across them. humanity. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we talked a little bit about what it means to be Catholic. Uh, what does it mean to be apostolic? Okay. Um, to understand this confession, we need to remember that the apostles fulfilled the role of handing down to the rest of the church all of what Jesus had taught them. 
The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and were handpicked by him to act in this role. When we confess the church is apostolic, we are confessing that we humbly receive and affirm the same truth of the faith that was given to the apostles. So we're affirming the, to some degree, the New Testament, mm-hmm. but really the story of the New Testament. That's right. We're affirming the uh, the account of Jesus, mm-hmm. but what you just said, the life, death, resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Roman Catholics are probably going to disagree a little bit mm-hmm. on that, of like what it means to be apostolic. Right. But as a church universal, that one church... Mm-hmm. We can all affirm that, that Correct. this is what the Gospels say, mm-hmm. which is why we can affirm as Protestants even part of the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. So one of the other pieces in the creed that I know might um, make us Protestants just a little bit concerned is the part about baptism and what we affirm. So it says we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But we also know from our tradition that there is nothing about the water that does anything. There's nothing magical or um, supernatural about the water when someone is baptized. So what does the creed mean when it says uh, that we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a surface reading, this could be understood to mean that baptism is done in order to receive the forgiveness of sin. Um, and so forgiveness, however, um, forgiveness on a Christian understanding uh, is actually the invisible work of God of which baptism is its visible sign. Mm. Which is, just side note, that's what a sacrament is, right? That is what a sacrament is. So when we is. talk about a sacrament... Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about, not necessarily what we hear or what we might have grown up under in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That's right. A visible sign of an invisible grace. Okay. It's, it's something that we can see, it's manifested in front of us, uh, and it tells us something about an inward reality. Yeah. And so um, that means that baptism is a consequence of forgiveness, not its prerequisite we don't get baptized to be forgiven. We are baptized because we are forgiven. That's what that means. So according to the Apostle Paul, baptism is a reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why some of the earliest Christians were known to strip naked and immerse themselves three Next times. Next weekend. In a pool of water. Yeah. I'm yeah. kidding. Uh, yeah, that's what the, uh, a lot of the early Christians did is yeah. they stripped down. But, and the reason was is because Jesus was stripped naked mm. on the cross. So it was a dramatic reenactment of what Jesus had mm. done. And uh, I have to do a little bit of homework on this because I've heard three, uh, two different things on this. Um, Christians were known to baptize. They would dip themselves into the water three times. Now, there could be two different traditions here. One tradition has it that they do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why they go down the water three times. Yep. Another tradition has it that um, this is because Jesus was in the grave for three days. Hmm. So just as he was in the grave three days, we are buried in Christ. And the, the three days is us imitating his death. Yeah. And by coming out of the water, we uh, we are resurrecting. Yeah. So it's a symbol of, of, what, uh, of the reality of yeah. what Jesus did. Um, 
So baptism is a dramatic imitation of how Jesus lived, and by being baptized, we identify ourselves in Christ's death and resurrection. So by affirming one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we proclaim the life and death of Jesus through the Christian rite of baptism. And I, I really think this is really important because one of the things that Protestants and I think evangelicals to some degree have done is we've downplayed the significance of baptism mm-hmm. because it doesn't do anything in the sense of it doesn't take away our sins or do something supernatural to us. We just make the assumption, well, therefore we don't really need it or it's not uh, essential or necessary. But what the Nicene Creed teaches us is, no, 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 it's a really important part, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we were talking about this at lunch before we started recording. Uh, I think about baptism in connection to marriage and how I've never, and I'm sure it's out there, but I've never been to a marriage ceremony where rings weren't exchanged, mm-hmm. right? They're always exchanged. Now, if you take your wedding ring off, you're still married. That's right. Right? But it's important, and it's a significant part. And so for me, part of confessing baptism in the creed, it demonstrates to us the significance that if you are going to follow Jesus, you should be baptized. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the New Testament, uh, this is kind of a soapbox for me, so I could be here forever, but the New Testament is unaware of a Christian who is unbaptized. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because if you were going to follow Jesus, you were going to be baptized. It's a command of the Lord. The Lord Jesus told us mm-hmm. to be baptized. Which is why Protestants call it an ordinance. That's right. right. Because it's an ordained act Correct. that Christ has told us to do. Correct. So the creed does that. Those are some of kind of the doctrinal things, some of the things that we need to understand about the creed. Uh, what do you think we should do with the Nicene Creed? What, uh, or how do we take it and how do we use it in our own personal lives? How do we use it devotionally? Uh, what should the significance of it be for us? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the best uses, uses of the Nicene Creed is to read it together in church, as we are doing here at Vintage. There's something really powerful about coming together and reminding ourselves of proclaiming to one another and with one another that what unites us isn't the name Vintage Church. Hmm. What unites us is our one Lord, one faith, and our one baptism. We are just a local body of the wider Catholic Church, and we proclaim the same Jesus that the apostles did. So I think that is one way we could use the Nicene yeah. Creed. And real quick, well, I think also what's significant about that is that there are plenty of things that could divide us. Mm-hmm. Right. right. There's plenty of bat- different backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, political views, and all of those things could divide us. But part of confessing the creed together is reminding us, despite all of the things that could divide us, mm-hmm. these are the truths that unite us. That's right. That's right. Um, and another way is to, uh, to recite the creed to ourselves. That's another way we could use this. Um, in our quiet times, uh, we could meditate on it. Um, because as we said earlier, it's a summary of biblical teachings. The Nicene Creed should lead us back to Scripture. Mm. Um, the Nicene Creed is a product of the church, and Scripture is its proof. We should never settle for what our forefathers gave us, but should use the creed in an attempt to reenact their steps 
and to see how they got to the confession we have today. Um, I know personally, my reading of Scripture has been really enriched by meditating on the Nicene Creed, as well as reading some of the church fathers, just mm-hmm. reading how, how do they read Scripture. Um, there are times where, you know, I might read something that Augustine said, you know, he's you know, after Nicaea, but, you know, I might read the church fathers and think, well, that's a little weird, but they definitely caused me to engage Scripture. Yeah, it's causing you to go back. That's right. And reread what you've read. That's right. And so these are the, the wisdom of the ancients. These are Christians who, um, in, in some really harsh circumstances, I mean, this is not something that they, uh, this wasn't a, uh, a meeting of minds just to talk about some uh, theological, um, this wasn't a theological conference that they got together and just <laughs> talked creeds. Uh, they, a lot of these people had just come out of crazy circumstances mm-hmm. uh, of almost dying for their faith. Um, it meant something for them to, yep. to unite around this, and uh, the the ancient world was it was not fun, and so they they really believed this. Yeah. And so for people who lived in that context, it puts a lot of weight for me to listen to them, because that's part of what it means to honor uh, our forefathers, to honor them, and to and to listen to what they said, and uh, to gather their insights. Yeah. So if someone wanted to dig deeper on the Nicene Creed, what would be your Recommend, recommendation, where should they go? Yeah, so I, I struggled with this one because I thought, you know, as a PhD student, um, I'm, I'm reading the primary sources uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. And so there are some primary sources that I would not recommend just jumping into because they do require a little bit of training to, to, to read. But I, I think one of, um, this isn't necessarily um, anything specific to the Nicene Creed, but I have really enjoyed listening to um, and reading the blogs from the guys from the Center for Baptist Renewal. Okay. Um, that is that's a website that you can go to. You can read their blogs. You can listen to. I think they have a podcast. They do. They yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of their, uh, the, the authors, uh, two of the people that contribute are, are my own professors. And so there's a lot of really good stuff they put out that yep. really illuminates some of the ideas that we've talked about today. Yeah. They're, they're doing retrieval work. They're going back and trying to pull out. Um, right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for what you've shared. I think a lot of this is really helpful. And one of the reasons um, that I wanted to lean into the Nicene Creed, I think you're right. It should be something that potentially we, we recite every week. But I think one of the beauties of the Nicene Creed in this season of the church and in, in the season of Advent is to really reflect on what we're celebrating. Like, who is this person that we're gathering together during the season of Advent to remember his birth and mm-hmm. to remember his first coming and to anticipate his second coming? And part of uh, doing that with the Nicene Creed is reminding us of who he is, right? That mm-hmm. this series we've been in, uh, Home for Christmas, that he is a the humble servant, speaking of his humanity, mm-hmm. and he is the divine, uh, the divine king, speaking of his divinity. And so for me, my encouragement to us as a church is that we would be intentional in these seasons. I think the church um, did something um, significant when it set up these kind of holy times of like Advent and Lent, uh, because they're meant for us to lean in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And uh, trust in and seek after Jesus a little bit more. And part of that is leaning in and seeking after who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And so I hope this conversation helps 
those listening helps our church understand like what's the, the importance of the Nicene Creed why should we why should we recite it why should we meditate on it why should we study it and so thanks again for yeah. for joining us thanks for having me if you're enjoying the content and you find it helpful, please subscribe to stay up to date. You can leave a review or you can share it with your friends. My desire is that what I share with you here will equip and inspire you to live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church after Sunday. Thanks for listening to After Sunday. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show, leave us a review, and share it with others. If you would like to learn more about the ministry of Vintage Church, check out VintageChurchMovement.com.